future. There are no people. There are no people in the future. No people at all. There are no people in the future. Where did all my people go? There are no people in the future. Let me try my people call. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, it is Monday, January 31st, 2022. We have officially almost at the end of the first month of 2022. Welcome to Raging Chickens Out to Coop Live. This is Kevin Mahoney, editor and founder of Raging Chicken. On Out to Coop Live, we talk to progressives, activists, and troublemakers of all sorts, right from our own backyards from across the country. And there's nights like tonight. And we're just kind of checking out what's in the news, uh, hearing what's on your mind telling you what i've been reading stuff like that see what you're reading fun stuff like that on friday sean kitchen and i break down the good the bad and the ugly in state and national politics although i have to say this friday we might have a little bit of a change of format uh, i mentioned this on the show um, before is that sean is coming to some work conflicts with our regular friday show so uh it looks like on fridays we're going to be bringing in some uh guest hosts for a bit um sean will be joining us when he can and uh, this Friday, uh, I'm just going to secure this up um, before I uh, I make before the uh, the person who is going to be joining me on Friday has fully confirmed. Let me let this person fully confirm and let me square away all the details before I let you know uh, who will be here on Friday to join me for Out to Coop Friday's Politics Roundup. Um, but Sean will be uh, jumping in when he can. Um, we'll have more details on that as the scheduling stuff gets worked out. And you got to check out the Wednesday show with Cyril Michaleko. Yes, next Wednesday, Cyril and I are back. That's right. We will be back next Wednesday uh, for the Wednesday show. Cyril, of course, is a progressive columnist for the Bucks County Courier Times and the Intelligencer. And he joins me to drill down into Bucks County, Pennsylvania, and international politics. You can get all our shows by subscribing to our podcast on Podbean, iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast. You can help support this show by becoming a patron for as little as five bucks a month. Head on over to patreon.com slash rcpress and you can become a patron for as little as five bucks a month. You can also help out the show right now by heading on over to our YouTube channel if you're not already there. Smash that subscribe button, like the stream for the show, and hit that notification bell that, so you know every time we go live. And let everybody know about it, you know? Share it out to your social media, let everybody know what's going on, invite them to the conversation. You can also join our Discord server. Um, information on that is in tonight's show notes. And we'll be chatting, uh, you know, periodically throughout the week. We had some kind of good discussion a little bit going on about the uh, show Foundation, which is over on uh, Apple TV or Apple Plus, however you want to say it. Um, <coughs> excuse me, I talked a little bit about that. For more PA Progressive Talk, tune in to the Rick Smith Show's live stream at 9 p.m. Eastern on his YouTube channel, Twitter, Facebook, you know, wherever you get your live streams. He's there every night. Head on over to the RickSmithShow.com for the ladies across all his platforms. Uh, he's out there at WBAI, KPFK in Los Angeles, all over the country now, man. He's just tearing it up. Um, phenomenal interviews uh, with some uh, U.S. senators this past week. Uh, dealing with the kind of impasse that we're in about getting absolutely anything passed that's related to democracy, voting rights, and all, I don't know, people. About that. 
And you also got to check out the Sisters of the Night Caucus podcast, the amazing PA women stirring the political cauldron behind the podcast Rocky House. And they know where the bodies are buried. Make sure to follow them on Twitter at, at the Night Caucus. That's at the Night Caucus on Twitter. And subscribe to their podcast on Anchor, Spotify, iTunes, wherever you get your podcast. And for all you gamers out there, check out The Game In. That's with two N's. The Game In is a Quakertown-based black family-owned gaming store. They're friends of the show, and they've got everything for Retro N64s, the latest consoles, video games for all platforms, collectibles, action figures, Funko Pops. Great stuff on over there. Kids get also discounts with every A on the report card. Check them out on their Facebook page. Follow them at Twitter at, at The Game In. That's with two N's at The Game In. And got a question about a game, looking for something hard to get? Shoot them a message or drop them an email at thegameinpa at gmail.com. And a special shout out, as always, goes to Jonathan Mann, who wrote our intro song, There Are No People in the Future. Check out all his great stuff on his YouTube page and follow him on Twitter at, at Song of Dayman. Again, with two N's, that's at Song of Dayman on Twitter. Well, yes, yes, yes. Uh, for those of you who have been uh, waiting for the return of our guests, well, um, yes, this is another week of me chatting, and uh, we're not having a bunch of guests this week again. Uh, it's been a little bit of a, uh, I would say, a rockier start to my um, my semester. Not necessarily in terms of preparation. As a matter of fact, I have to say, at the beginning of this semester, I've had I was so far ahead of the game um, that I actually kind of took a day off on the weekend leading up to the semester because I was like, oh, this is great. I can spend some time with my family before I have to go back and all this kind of stuff. Um, the problem was I ran into a bunch of uh, um, tech issues. Um, I'm teaching one online class and three um, in-person classes uh, this semester. And just ran into some tech stuff, um, some weird ways that uh, the university's, uh, say, content management program interfaces with some websites. And um, also, I don't know. It's, it's got weird. I'm sorry. These uh, This mic is making weird noises in, I mean, in my my brains, in my ears. Anyways, so the, the point is, God, I'm just like, it's been this, this kind of week, right? Anyways, my point was being is that just some weird stuff, uploading videos and getting things uh, kind of prepared to go go live. There was just some uh, problems with uploading videos and the stuff that happens normally, but just seemed to be an excess share. And then uh, and that was it. My kids, of course, had uh, the Monday off. It was an in-service day, so it made it a short week. And so that was a little bit juggling all that together. So, you know, one of those kinds of things. But, you know, we're, we're getting there. We're getting there. Um, so today we're, you know, it's been back to a full week um, of work and so on. Uh, but tonight we've got a bunch of a bunch of kind of cool stuff going on out there. I'd uh, love to hear from you, too, as well. I've got um, things that you want to talk about, things that you're jumping the moves. You can throw it in the chat. you got some links to some cool stuff you want to talk about. Um, that'd be great. Great. You can always, uh, if you want to call in, you can always hit the uh, Riverside.fm link that is in tonight's show notes. Um, you can call into the show um, if you so choose. Just remind you that if you do want to call into the show, um, make sure that you turn the volume down or silence your uh, YouTube channel so that you're not getting that feedback and you're not getting the delay in the speak. You'll just be calling in directly in Riverside.fm. But so tonight we've got some some stuff happening in Philly, um, some kind of cool stuff going on, some great stuff, uh, events coming up around uh, PA elections. Um, there's uh, Trump, of course, gave a uh, basically call for a race war over the weekend, uh, which was just crazy. Um, 
I got the new issue of Descent this week. Uh, got a, picked up a couple books from the Doylestown bookstore. It's been a good day. Um, so I just thought maybe we can just um, take a peek at some of that stuff, see what you got to think. And uh, again, love to hear what's on your mind. Uh, right off the bat, um, it looks like the uh, Star Wars Union uh, Star Wars. <laughs> the Starbucks unionization effort is not a fluke, as some people suggested that it was just... Um, you know, just a little something that was happening up there in Buffalo. And, you know, Buffalo, you had this kind of socialist running for mayor and she won the nomination. But then you had this all the weird stuff. Maybe just Buffalo. Nope. Um, it turns out that there has been union files, um, people filing, uh, different workers filing for unionization with the National Labor Relations Board across the country. And, of course, uh, this past week, workers at, uh, this was in WHYY that I'm reading from, just so you know, workers at two Starbucks locations in Philadelphia announced their plans to unionize um, on Friday, joining a wave of workers attempting to unionize of the national coffee chain shops. Petitions were filed with the National Labor Relations Board on behalf of employees working at the 600 Ninth Street and the 1945 Callow Hill Street locations. And that was according to the union Starbucks Workers United. The shops in 16 states have now announced um, announced or completed union drives. Two of the first locations that attempted organizing, both in Buffalo and New York, succeeded in winning their union elections. Ahead of those votes, Starbucks, votes, Starbucks CEO Kevin Johnson and former CEO Howard Schultz both made appeals to the workers to reject the union. And some workers received text messages saying, please vote and vote no to protect what you love about Starbucks. Low wages, <laughs> no worker protection, schedules that you can't schedule around, on-time processing, all that stuff. Um, so that's pretty cool. So congratulations for the filing. At least I know that the battle is not over, certainly. But the filing for those uh, workers in Philadelphia, those two Starbucks locations, again, that is 609th Street and 1945 Callow Hill Street locations in Philadelphia. Um, so if you were down in Philly at all, um, stop in and show them some love. Um, and they had a cool action that um, that if you were kind of pre-ordering a drink in one of those locations and uh, ahead of the different vote uh, to call in, uh, to leave your name as uh, Union Yes or Vote Yes on the Union, um, that's kind of a pretty kind of cool thing. I think I just might be calling in my name uh, as Union Yes um, when I anytime that I'll stop by a Starbucks. Um, you know, if there's I'm looking at well, my neck of the woods, uh, there's I pass two Starbucks on my way to work on um, every day. One in Quakertown, and uh, right in the kind of the heart of Quakertown on 309, it's uh, right next to like a kind of a sub shop, I forget, uh, Game In and uh, Five Guys is all over there. And uh, so there's that one there. And then there's a second one that's in like Brinningsville location, I believe. It's like a Brinningsville location um, on the 222 bypass there. So um, maybe I'll make it a point to give some Union Yes orders from over there. You know what I'm saying? Pretty cool. So that's the news from Starbucks. Um, this is another thing that just kind of came in today. Um, not too long ago, actually, this was also uh, reporting in WHYY, and um, Philly is going to pilot a guaranteed income experiment, giving cash to some needy residents. Now, this is going to—it's going to be interesting to see how this transpires, right? So, this kind of breaks into this whole basic income um, debate, right? So, for those of you who might not be familiar with basic income, that's the idea: is that you, you know, for being alive. 
just alive, right? Um, not means tested other than the fact that you're alive, you get a check, right? Um, a basic income that is um, no questions asked, right? Just kind of straight up cash income, right? And that goes to everybody. And there's been a number of experiments that have been done on this. Um, there were some, uh, a couple in the U.S. There was a notable one in Canada. And probably the most, uh, it's not called a basic income, but it is um, a version of this. The closest thing that would come to this is what you get in Alaska, right? As, you know, if you're a resident of Alaska and citizen of Alaska, that um, you get a check from the oil industry, basically, um, from the government, but it's basically from the oil profits and the oil drilling and stuff. I mean, obviously, that's not a sustainable model. Um, but for the longest time, you live in Alaska, you just got a check, right? Just for being, you know, a citizen resident of Alaska. Pretty cool, right? Now, the one in Philadelphia, um, I'll just here. I'll, I'll let me just read you the kind of opening paragraphs on here, and we'll kind of talk a little bit about this. So, um, cash is king. That's and again, this is from WHYY. Um, cash is king. That's the takeaway. Is Philadelphia is set to join soon join other U.S. cities in attempting an experimental economic mobility pilot that will give recipients cash payments, no string attached. As early as March, Philadelphia will start giving up to sixty people five hundred dollars a month for at least twelve months. Recipients will be selected from a pool of 1,100 people who have received federal support through TAMP or Temporary Assistance for Needy Families for five years. A total of 322,000 will cover the cost, thousand dollars, I'm sorry, will cover the cost drawing from existing TAMP funds. The key distinction from traditional social programs such as TAMP, um, said uh, Dr. Nakia Owens, Philadelphia's Deputy Executive Director of Family Supports and Basic Needs, is that, quote, they don't have to do anything extra for this money. In recent years, universal basic income or guaranteed income programs popular in other parts of the world have gained traction in the United States. Former Democratic presidential candidate Andrew Young, Yang I'm sorry, campaigned on the concept, and Stockton, California has been experimenting with giving some residents monthly cash stipends since 2019. Preliminary findings from that experiment showed recipients' mental health and prospects for finding full-time work improved. The thesis is simple. Traditional welfare programs with stringent eligibility rules do not actually move people out of poverty, but unrestricted cash can. Quote, when you invest directly into the individual, those individuals are more likely to succeed, said Owens. So now this is interesting. I mean, obviously, this is the very, very small pilot program. You're talking about uh, $500 a month, right? Um, and it's only 60 people. Right. Not even 60 families, but 60 people who are receiving these funds. Um, you can make an argument that, you know, it's more than that because some of these are, are going to be the, the money will be going to an adult will, that has children. So have an impact like this. But this is kind of uh, kind of an interesting program. Now, the, of course, the problem with some of the basic income programs, such as uh, the basic income that were proposed by Andrew Yang and a lot of you, you get this weird support for uh, basic income programs out of um, uh, Silicon Valley, this huge support for it, thinking this is great. What you should do is just give people the money. The problem with some of the kind of the right leaning or the libertarian leaning versions of basic income is that they just want this kind of like lump cash payment to be put out in place of 
other social programs. So in other words, that you give this, in this case, it's, you know, 500 bucks a month. And then you get rid of food stamps, you get rid of all the other forms of support, you get rid of any other kind of, you know, supplementary income, um, you know, free lunches, all anything else that the state would normally support, right? Any kind of, you know, um, support in Medicaid, any of that kind of stuff. That obviously is something that I, there's no way in hell I could possibly support, right? So what the, but on the left end of things, where you find out that there's uh, support for basic income, that comes out of um, the idea that you distribute that as your baseline, right? And there's this great book called Give People Money, um, which kind of looks at some of these experiments. That actually, ironically, one of the um, the biggest experiments that that where this was carried out was in Kenya. And I, I forget the the dollars amounts, but you talk about a situation where people don't have access to government services in some places. They don't have access to banking accounts and so on. So everything was done through cell phones where you had this cellular banking system that was that was um, kind of a network that was kind of being developed in Kenya is kind of separate from this program. And the money would just show up in their accounts. Right. And what they found is that you had a, you know, a, a surprise, surprise. Right. You know, you know, if you ask the real question, right, why are people poor? The reason is the real reason why people are poor is because they don't have money. Right? It's like that's like in the definition of being poor. Right. So instead of psychologizing it and all this kind of stuff, you just use the kind of Hockham's razor version of this and say, no, they're poor because they don't have money. Right. Yeah. You, we could talk about all the reasons why this is. is not, but the reason why they're poor right now is because they don't have money. So why don't we just give people money? And it's been a, a pretty remarkable success in Kenya thus far. Um, and you're talking about this being in a country that, you know, doesn't have the kind of wealth, the kind of deep wealth that, um, say, the U.S. has or some other countries. Um, and it's successful. And why? Because they find out that when you actually give people money, they use it for things they need. <laughs> right. So. And you don't, they don't have to go and kind of prove that they're looking for work. They don't have to go and prove that they're upstanding citizens, that they didn't have a glass of wine in the past week, that, you know, um, and turn over all this kind of private data um, and having people inspecting their homes to determine whether or not they're kind of like wholesome individual. No, just give people the money and you cut out all that bureaucracy, right? You get rid of it entirely. And so you end up saving money in the end, right? Because you're not kind of building out this, this surveillance network um, of kind of, say, being on welfare or getting kind of public support. And I've talked about this on the show before, but, I, you know, I, I can remember growing up on, on food stamps and a whole series of different kinds of um, supports um, after my parents got divorced. And, you know, there was like such shame that was built into the system because, you know, you have these people who suddenly have access to your lives and are judging you, you know, walking around your house, looking at you. And plus, I had, you know, a kind of um, a mentally disabled sister. Um, and so you had, you know, any assistance for her. You'd have other people coming in to kind of monitor it. And it was never people just showing up for like, hey, can we help you out with this? Can we help you out with this? No, it was more about, you know, it was about judgment. Is like, are you doing these things correctly according to this rubric of what an upstanding person is, right? Um, 
and generally these, you know, it, it, it was always felt invasive. It always felt shameful. And, and that is true kind of across the board. Um, but once you remove all that from and say you don't want the shame police around anymore, that you just want to give people money, is that it, it works. And it actually turns out that it costs less money in the end, right, um, just for that kind of the baseline assistance, right, to make sure that people have got what they need. Now, in order for this to be successful as like at the society level, of course, and this is the argument that you get in a lot of the kind of the, the on the left end of things. I remember dissent had a great kind of discussion about this and um, the, the folks writing in dissent tend to be pretty skeptical of these things in part because they're being offered as a way of getting rid of social programs. So what I've done effectively, you have basic income, but then you have universal health care. You have universal higher ed, um, free kind of college tuition for state, you know, for state institutions. You have all this kind of like universal social networks that you get in, you know, kind of other countries, social democratic countries. And then you're basically suddenly are in a situation where you're investing in human thriving, right? And kind of human kind of development and creativity as opposed to, you know, just getting people to the point where they can survive. And why is that? Well, if you don't have to worry about your health care, Right. If you don't have to worry about your, um, say, you say your retirement, if you don't have to worry about kind of, you know, getting the education that you need, um, and you have a, say, a robust um, public housing um, thing, um, just like uh, Emily French was just saying this in the uh, chat tonight. Is there a movement to give free housing to unhoused folks? There is some of that stuff, um, although it's not as it's a little bit more kind of scattered, I think. I wanted to say that Seattle was doing something like this and there was another experiment in um uh, another attempt to do this. I know like uh, um, uh Saval uh, from uh, Philadelphia is really kind of an advocate um, to be focusing on housing. But anyways, but the idea is that, you know, you, you have this baseline income. And also imagine this. Imagine that instead of working for like a crappy job just so that you can get health insurance or kind of uh, eke out some kind of income, if that you had a little bit of a cushion so that your employer did not have leverage over you, Right. So in other words, that, you know, if you were kind of being mistreated at a job or you were kind of in, a, in a, an abusive uh, you know, either personal relationship or work relationship, right? You know, kind of like you're working, if your workplace was kind of an abusive situation, you could just leave your job you know, and you'd still have health care, right? Because you got the universal health care. Um, but also you actually had kind of some disposable income so that you're still contributing to kind of the economy and so on. Or let's say, for example, that you wanted to do something like, oh, I don't know have a podcast and an independent kind of media site, right? Um, and that you know that, you know, models where you go out and kind of, uh, you know, are relying upon either advertising dollars or kind of like massive amounts of kind of voluntary contributions in order to make something really sustainable, right, as a, as a livable prospect. Um, well, you know, as I've talked about on the show before, that's just not possible right now for something like Raging Chicken. However, if you had kind of a baseline income where you could really devote time to kind of building something from the ground the ground up without having to you know, have the trade-offs about, you know, my putting my family in jeopardy and all this other kinds of stuff, imagine that. Imagine what it would do for the for artists, right? There were some cool experiments that were, took place a while back that was really focusing on giving artists money, right? Um, this is they did this in the um, the Works Project Progress Administration as part of the New Deal too as well. They decided that well, what happens if we you know we saw um, artists as part of our economy, right? As opposed to you know all these ideologies of the kind of the lone artist, the suffering artist and all that. What if we actually kind of invested in them and, and had them kind of like 
create things right for the um for the public um for the public good imagine that that's why we had all that art that came out of the wpa so things like that so now again like i said this is a small pilot project in philadelphia uh 60 people um and uh there's still some question about how this is going to work out in terms of like where the funds come from it says it's coming from existing tamp funds um so is this going to be in lieu of those tamp support programs and so on it sounds like it may be it is going to be kind of quite interesting to see where this goes out so kudos to those folks in philly for getting this through um that's pretty awesome in uh what else do i got here oh yeah this is kind of cool um i don't know if people read this i know that some of my bucks county folks have uh probably kind of been checking this out uh chris ullery in the bucks county courier times published this great piece um it's called analysis we examined millions of pennsylvania voter records and there were few irregularities in quotes let me read a little bit of this. So there has been, um, this is from the Bucks County Courier Times, there has been a litany of allegations surrounding Pennsylvania's voter rolls over the past year, but a review of registration data suggests most claims may be overblown at best. As a legal battle between a GOP-led Senate committee and the Pennsylvania Department of State continues, this news organization reviewed voter data from December 13, 2021, as well as in the weeks of November 3, 2020 election and the May 18, 2021 municipal primary to shed light on what has been sometimes vague claims and allusions to voter fraud. The Commonwealth's voter rolls aren't perfect, but election and voting policy experts out of the Massachusetts Institute of Technology's Election Data and Science Lab say the potential errors, errors found in this organization's review don't raise any red flags for them. Among their findings, um, here, approximately 12,017 individuals out of 8.72 million voters on the December 13th voter rolls share the same birth date and first and last names. In total, those repeating people accounted for about 24,112 um, entries, or about 0.28% of the roll. Second, right. so when middle names were included, only 6,537 entries from about 3,262 individuals remained, or about 0.07% of voters overall. So these are duplicate kind of rules. Like say, for example, if you register to vote in one location and then you move across the state, you register to vote in another that, that new location, but you forget to cancel your old one, that is a potential for that, right? But, you know, my, you know, my name is Kevin Mahoney. There used to be another Kevin Mahoney that lived in Percocet, right? Um, I know that because I called somewhere and make a reservation when I first moved here. Uh, and my wife and I were going to go out for dinner and then... Uh, I made a reservation. They're like, Kevin. I'm like, hello. They're like, oh, my God, you're back in town. What did you get back? I'm like, I don't know what you're talking about. You know, and we went back and forth and found out there was a Kevin Mahoney that lived here in Berkeley. Um, So, you know, things like that. So sometimes it can be just a fluke, especially if you have, there's a common name. In other cases, um, it might be a situation where somebody moved and so on. Um, but still, you're talking about 0.07% of the voters overall. And about 643 voters were over 120 years old, according, according to their birth date, a rate of about 0.0001% of all voters, right? So again, this is an instance where somebody dies, right? And there's somebody in the family or who's ever dealing with the estate or doesn't, doesn't think, right, um, to go in and cancel their voter registration so they stay on the rolls, right? 
And then about 400 voters were missing last names, four were missing a date of birth, and another 86 were missing first names. Right? So all in all, um, there's like some of these minor inaccuracies and other thing. Now, let's be clear. This is just a um, um, the, looking at the voter records. This is not looking strictly at the people who voted. Right. Um, but it's a great piece. I strongly recommend folks um, check it out. Um, and again, this is done by the Bucks County Courier Times. And I want to let people know that this uh, let's see, I think it's Wednesday, but it might be Thursday. Thursday, this Thursday at 6.30 p.m., the League of Women Voters PA is hosting uh, Chris Ullery from the Bucks County Courier Times. Um, it's going to be a Zoom discussion. And just like, <clears throat> I'll put this in the show notes for folks uh, if I can grab it. I'll do that in a second. Let me just see if I can just grab it right away to make sure I don't forget. Um, if I put it in here, let's see, let's see, let's see. I'll check it out in a bit. I'll put it. I'll put it there in a minute. But so um, there's a, uh, a, a Zoom call. Let me just read it. This is from the League of Women Voters, PA. So join the League of Women Voters of Pennsylvania, the PA Budget and Policy Center. All voting is local, and we the people, Pennsylvania, as part of our series of forums on democracy in Pennsylvania, for a discussion with Chris Ullery, government and development reporter for Bucks County Intelligencer and Courier Times. He will talk about his latest piece, Analysis, We Examine Millions of Pennsylvania Voters, um, Voter Records, There Were Few Irregularities. Irregularities. He will discuss the data he examined and the findings, um, what the findings are, and related observations. Um, and so that's kind of cool. I'll make sure I put a, um, a link in that before the end of the show. So if people want to check that out, they can. Um, but it will also be in the show notes afterwards. Um, I'm definitely signed up for that. Um, and hope to kind of uh, kind of jump in and hear what Chris has got to say. He does. He's been doing some great reporting over the, um, the Bucks County Courier Times. So do check him out. Um, and if you can make it on, do you think I think it's going to be useful just to hearing some of these statistics and getting a little sense of um, what's what's real and what's not real. I'm also really hoping that it's going to get a a wide swath of people there um, just to kind of better understand, you know, what's real and what's not right i mean obviously these kind of, you know the, you know the right wing i don't know edge surfers if you will um the, those folks are never going to be convinced but you know there's a lot of people that just hear about irregularities and they're kind of unsure about it they're not following politics quite as closely um this is, sounds like a great opportunity to get some um really kind of good solid data analysis and it's based upon the piece it shows you that you I mean, look pennsylvania has actually got a pretty solid electoral system um and uh the amount of kind of quote-unquote irregularities like first of all let's be clear about this as long as we have like humans involved in institutions right there's always going to be problems there's always going to be irregularities and nothing will ever be perfect so we just started at our baseline that i do not mean to say therefore anything goes right i mean this is the other this is the other kind of like like crazy move that gets made i shouldn't use that but the other kind of like frustrating and disingenuous move that gets made by the folks on the right wing right in terms of these arguments so by me saying like look as long as we have human institutions we're going to have human you know kind of error is going to be part of any of those institutions Right. And then the response comes from the right wing saying, oh, so you're basically saying everything, anything goes then that just because there's sometimes going to be errors. And therefore, every, you know, that's fine if we have kind of like people cheating on that. No, 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 no. Let's let can we just like have like a real discussion and say like, no, but let's just say that just because there is an irregularity like we just like I was just reading some of those examples. 
right? You have some people that are, you know, have two names that are appearing in the rules that you could check up on. That is going to happen just because there's that kind of regularity. And, you know, and this is extraordinarily low percentage, right, of the overall uh, voter rolls. It doesn't mean that, therefore, it's a conspiracy to kind of take away the elections. No, right? Obviously, if you had a 20% error rate and you had um, there's um, those errors were showing up in terms of actual votes cast, then we might have kind of more of a concern. But here you're just talking about the numbers of people appear on the voting rolls, right? Um, and, you know, in some cases, what Republicans want to do is you say, oh, look, if you've got uh, – what is that piece here? Let's see where'd that go. So if you've got uh, say if you have got uh, twenty four thousand one hundred and twelve entries that have um, people with the same birth date and the same first and last names, right? Um, and that's 028 percent of the rolls. Well, then you should just, you should delete them both, right? Okay, you delete them both because what? Because why? Because you're saying that somebody is trying to cheat the system by that, but you don't know this because even that you take that next line down. But when you include middle names, that jumps down from you know twenty four thousand down to six thousand five hundred thirty seven entries, or point zero seven percent of the rolls. Right. So just think about that. If I went ahead and purged those people from the voter rolls based upon just first and last names and birth date. That I'm basically looking at kind of making an error somewhere in the somewhere like around, I don't know, 17,000, right? About 17,000 people that I've wrongly purged from the voles, or from the from the rolls, right? Just because my, my methodology is unsound. And we know that um, that is going to disproportionately, um, you know, disenfranchise people that, uh, you know, don't need to be disenfranchised. Well, I mean, I'm not saying that very well, but so that, you know, that's, that's pretty significant. So, and then those people show up on the day of the vote and they find out that they're not registered anymore, even though they think they are. Right. So those are the certain kinds of things that you'd never want that to happen. Right. Um, so, I mean, it, would it be, would it be legitimate to basically, you know, have municipalities follow up with folks and say, Hey, you still living at this address and you just want to make sure to confirm, you know, confirm that you're still there. Um, and not at a point right before an election where it can negatively affect the election, but do it kind of like after election to follow that stuff up or see it as an ongoing process instead of it's something that happens once in a great while that you just make sure that you're as accurate as possible with the expect expectation there's going to be some error. Sure. Okay. That's fine. But we all know that these voter suppression efforts or these voter purge rules are not designed to do that. They're designed in order to drive down turnout and to purge people from the rules that are going to be beneficial um, to have not vote for Republicans. Right. So that's the way that works. <laughs> um, there's this piece here, too. Um and this kind of folds into a lot of stuff that's been going on that uh, we've been talking about on the show. And uh, I know Cyril has been writing about um, for a while. But I don't know if you saw, but uh, uh, Trump gave a uh, rally this past week, weekend. How about that? Deep in the heart of Texas, as it were. And um, Will Bunch had a great piece on this Um yesterday uh it's titled at texas rally trump all but promised a racially charged civil war if he's indicted and i think like you know will is 
he's right on the mark with this. So let me just read you a couple sections from this um, to give you a sense of kind of what the case is that he's arguing. So this is kind of a, towards the middle of the piece. So, in fact, the man who occupied the White House little more than one year ago delivered one of the most incendiary and most dangerous speeches in America's 246-year history. It included an appeal for all-out mayhem in the streets to thwart the U.S. justice system and prevent Trump from going to jail as the vice tightens from overlapping criminal probes in multiple jurisdictions. And it also featured a stunning campaign promise— that Trump would look to abuse the power of the presidency to pardon those involved in the January 6th insurrection. Right? Yes, Amy says, yes, unfortunately, he opened his mouth. It says, it's impossible for me to understate or downplay the importance of this moment, and I hope that my colleagues in the media, who too often over the last year have craved or even pretended about a return to the politics of normal, when we are nowhere near normal, they will wake up and they will see this. Of course, Biden's presidency deserves our full scrutiny with praise for what's gone right and not economic boom and criticism for what's gone wrong, broken promises on climate and student debt, for example. But while Biden is seeking to restore democratic norms, a shadow ex-president unpunished so far for his role in an attempted coup on January 6 is rebuilding a cult-like movement in the heartland of America with all the personal grievance and appeals to brown shirt style violence that marked the lowest moments of the 20th century. On the 89th anniversary of the date, January 30th, 1933, that Adolf Hitler rehabilitated his attempted coup, assumed power in Germany, we are preparing, or we are repeating the past mistakes and complacency and underestimation. Or I'm sorry, are we repeating the past mistakes of complacency and underestimation? It's crazy, 89th anniversary. I had no idea that it was the same date until I was reading this piece. Amid the predictable reiterations of the big lie that Biden's legitimate 2020 election was stolen and his other narcissistic blather, Trump's lengthy speech in Conroe, Texas, contained three elements that marked a dangerous escalation of his post-presidential, post-January 6th rhetoric. Let's digest and analyze each one of them. And I'm just going to kind of name them here. I'll let you read the piece to check it out in here. So for the first time, so if somehow elected again in 2024 and upon returning to the White House in January 2025, he dangled pardons before people convicted of crimes in January 6th insurrection on Capitol Hill. Right. And Will Bunch, I think, correctly calls this kind of like obstruction of justice in full public view. So if you think about what that does is that basically if you've got people that are going to trial, right, and they're Trump supporters and they're part of the cult of Trump, Trump is basically saying to them, shut your mouths. And support me, don't kind of spill the beans on me, and elect me in 2024, and I'll get you out. And you'll prove to be justified. You know, so basically, he's trying to persuade folks to not testify against, excuse me. So that's number one. And number two, right, you can tell, and Bunch is kind of pointing to this, is that, you know, Trump is worried about these different kind of probes, right? He's got criminal probes into his business, into his businesses and, you know, his nonprofits and all that kind of stuff. We've seen that. And there's uh, criminal probes under the taxes in New York, but also what we see uh, in the, the, um, the House probe into his involvement with the January 6th insurrection. He said, okay, what happens then? Well, um, since he's concerned about that, he explicitly called for mob action if charges are lodged in any of these jurisdictions, said Trump, quote, 
If these radical, vicious, racist prosecutors do anything wrong or illegal, I hope we are going to have in this country the biggest protests we've ever had in Washington, D.C., in New York, in Atlanta, and elsewhere because our country and our elections are corrupt. Right? He's basically calling people out to the streets. He's basically saying that if they come after me for the crimes that I've committed, you need to unleash holy hell. Right on them. And the crowds were going crazy when he was saying this. And then finally, and this, I'll, this is one that's super important. So well, let's take a step back and drill down on arguably the most important and alarming word in Trump's statement, racist. At first blush, it seems to come out of left field in the sense that what could be racist about looking into a white man's role in attempted coup or his crooked financial books? except that it happens that three of the key prosecutors investigating Trump, the Fulton County, um, Georgia District Attorney, uh, Fannie Willis, New York State Attorney General um, Letitia James, and new Manhattan prosecutor Alvin Bragg, as well as the chair of the House Committee, Representative Bernie Thompson of Mississippi, are all black. So you see what he's doing? He's using the kind of white victimhood Right. And the call for white aggrievement as a way of saying that this is racist against white people. All that bullshit that we hear all the time about reverse racism and everything he's calling upon. And it says, and Bunch says, in tying skin color to his call for mobs in Atlanta or New York, Trump is seeking to start a race war. No different, really, from Dylan Roof. Right. Remember, he's the killer. So there you have it. I mean, it's it's a great piece. I mean, I obviously did not read the whole thing, but um, this great piece by Will Bunch at Texas rally, Trump all but promised a racially charged civil war if he's indicted. So there you have that. <laughs> Emily says, the sad thing is there is no prohibition in the Constitution for a jailed inmate, inmate to run for president. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Crazy. Um, so that's the one piece I had. Um, what should I look at next? Uh, well, we're just going to say this one. Yeah, I'll close on an on an up note. How's that? But not this one, but the one after that. So, um, I came across now. I, I, I'll tell you right now that I reached out to these folks. I should look right now. Um, I reached out to these folks to see if we can get them to come on the show. Um, we shall see if they um, if they will come on. Um, there is a, this article from the Chronicle of Higher Education. Now, look, I know that everybody who listens to the show is not kind of like involved with higher ed, so um, um, I don't mean to kind of go in too narrow of a focus here. But you know, since I am involved in higher ed, and part of that was kind of part of my interest, and I do think higher education is kind of like a critical institution uh, for the maintenance of democracy and so on. Um, I, I came across this piece by uh, Kevin McClure and uh, Lisa uh, Hicklin Fryer. And it was just, you know, published last week, a week and a half ago. It's called The Great Faculty Disengagement. And um, I, I haven't exactly been shy about sharing some of my frustrations with uh, uh, say working at Kutztown right now or the state of higher education and so on and um, how difficult it's been just say personally for me right just to have something that I cared so much about um, just to have 
my passion for something just killed, you know? Um, and I looked at higher education as an institution, not just in terms of what happens in the classroom. I mean, I still love teaching my classes. I still love, you know, um, engaging with my students and so on. Um, I've always loved the students at Kutztown. I think they're just, uh, I mean, I've, I've just had just, you know, just awesome experiences with students at Kutztown. I mean, they just like always surprise you, always doing kind of working hard and all that kind of stuff. But the administration has just been, um, has gone out of its way to, you know, kind of just disrespect, disregard, belittle faculty members, you know, to reduce us to somehow self-interested like automatons of some sort like that are only after their own self-interest and not they don't care about you know higher education and so on and it, it gets you after a while especially when that's coupled with you know a refusal for you know the administration to uh, fill vacant seats that are that are for people who have retired or have gotten jobs elsewhere that were teaching classes that are necessary for students to get, you know, um, to have those classes in order to graduate, you know, to strip programs to the bone so that people are just kind of running ragged, all the while heaping more responsibilities um, to do just bean counting, basically, this assessment nonsense that they're doing in higher education right now is just like mind numbing. Um, the, you know, the constant like call for, we say, Hey, look, we've, we need, we, we need a faculty member to be able to cover these, um, to cover these courses. And then the reply is like, okay, well, you're going to need to show me all the data. So then suddenly individual faculty members become, you know, like data gatherers for an analyzing workload requirements of, you know, students or faculty members in a department or to cover classes. You know, and so you spend up, you spend your time trying to figure out how to get access and how to break down all these numbers as opposed to preparing for your classes where you're supposed to teach. And then when you actually produce these reports for the administration, you basically show them what you're doing. You give them all the data that they want. Not only do they, not only do they kind of disregard your conclusions, but very often they don't even read it. Like I, I've told this story before. I have never, I, 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 I have, I never would have suspected this, right? Um, when I was first getting into higher education, right? But there was an example. We had a we had a a class that was called um, Introduction to College Composition, right? And we had your first year college composition course. We also had a process by the former chair of our department, the woman who actually was responsible for hiring me, one of the women who was responsible for hiring me, Janice Chernikoff, um, had done all this research, had um, traveled across the country looking for best practice. And we set up this, um, the system was called directed self-placement. And all the kind of best practices in the field of composition rhetoric and, st and writing studies was basically showing that when you involved incoming students into the decision of which course they're going to teach, which writing course they're going to take as part of their composition requirement, that those students more often than not, and I, I would say at a higher rate than, than it would simply by using SAT scores or something, were placing themselves in appropriate classes. And as a matter of fact, there were students um, 
that we had that English uh, Introduction to College Composition class, which was an elective class, right? You could elect to take Introduction to College Composition before you took the required college composition class, right? If you felt that you needed kind of some additional um, practice in college level writing and stuff like this, right? That you wanted that. We found that once we started directed self-placement, the numbers in that intro class used to, before it used to be called something else, developmental English, we changed that too. But before that, the numbers actually went up so more students were self-selecting for two semesters of college-level writing. It was crazy, right? I mean, it's exactly the opposite of what the stories you hear about students. Like, ah, students, are they're not going to want to do any extra work, so they're just going to take the easy way out and just take the one-class thing. That's not what we found. And we also found on the other end of the spectrum, there were students who that if you just looked at their SAT scores or their projected GPAs coming out of high school and stuff, it would have put them solidly in kind of like, you know, the, the, the standard first-year class. But they, they wanted to take the honors level class. They wanted to do more work. We told them that it was going to be more work. We told them that it was going to be harder. And they wanted the challenge. And those students who made that challenge, we were able to show that they did, they did well, if not better than some of the people who were, would have been just placed directly into the honors program. Right. So it was this. And we used to have this time of the summer where students would come to this, um, the, the campus for orientation. And as part of their orientation, we would take them through these rounds of directed self-placement. Right. It was labor intensive. It was a lot of work. And I was the director of our first year of our writing, uh, writing program or our composition program for several years. And I used to run these things in the summer. It was hard work. It was long days. Um, lots of kind of reports and all this kind of stuff. But in the end, it was we had students who were invested in what they were doing in their first year. It was great. And, you know, and Janice, like I said, Janice Chernikoff was responsible of getting this thing off like off the ground and really kind of laying out um, a logic. And she published on this stuff and people would call her to get a like, perspective on how to do it at their university. It was great. And it was like it really set Kutztown apart. Right. You know, it was like we were doing this kind of really innovative program and all this stuff. So long story short is that when you had, you know, the bean counters decided that they were going to start looking at places to cut, they looked at directed self-placement because, you know, you had to pay somebody in the summer to come in and do this. They thought that that was irrelevant work and they wanted to get rid of it. So they looked for ways to get rid of it. And they didn't understand. They used the language that we don't want to give students college level credit for remedial work. They were calling that introduction to college composition class remedial work. It was not a remedial class. We used to stress this to them over and over again. We had to show them the data. We had to show them the research that backed this up. But still, that's all they would call it. So in their head, they put it in this remedial category so that they could get rid of it. Right. And eventually they did. Right. We went through several years of trying to save this. And then I was, you know, I passed on the uh, uh, the coordinator of composition to Dr. Amy Lynch Biniak, um, who's still the coordinator of composition there. And she fought for this tooth and nail, um, kind of left and right. And we also had um, Amanda Morris, who was our union president at one point and was also uh, she was running the writing center. And the the dean who would become the provost at the time had basically said, we need data if you say that this is so important we need data to show that this class does it what you say and you know and you're not just i don't know giving students you know more work or easy way out or whatever it is right 
So I, I wasn't part of this, but Amanda and kind of led a, a kind of effort. They did this huge assessment and they did a kind of like a study of looking at the success rates of students who's placed into self-placed into the 022 class and what how they did compared to their peers and all this other kind of stuff. They found in that direct study, because they we were told by the administration, well, you're relying upon research, you know, of like best practices and research of of faculty that have done this research at other universities you don't have anything from kutztown and we're like what like kutztown university students are kind of all unicorns that like you know speak some kind of space language that so you can't compare it to others no that's how research works right but they did it anyways they produced this report and on the first page first paragraph it showed exactly here it is this is the results of our finding it does what we say it does a matter of fact, here's all the specifics. We're tracking these students longitudinally and all this kind of stuff. And Amanda goes, remember, we talk, talked about this after this meeting and went and talked to this, this guy, Gil, who at that point ran the assessment program and the provost and all this stuff. And they sat down for this big meeting and it had been like, I don't know, a week or two since they had sent the report over to them. And the meeting was about the report. Um, and the first thing out of their mouths, the administration's mouths were, I, I, I wish I could remember the exact question, was basically something along the lines of like, well, you haven't shown that there um, is any kind of impact, um, positive impact over time uh, about this data. And Amanda said, right, uh, what everyone who's at that meeting suggested, Amanda basically said, it's in the first paragraph. And then they kind of like, was like, um, and looked back down and kind of like fumbled around it. And it was clear to them that the administration never even read the damn report. <clears throat> they were just using their assumptions as a way to get rid of a thing. And they were making all these faculty members, including me, but in that case, it was a bunch of other faculty members, jump through a bunch of, ho of hoops to do work that they didn't value. Not, not, the, not that the faculty members didn't value, but the administration didn't even value but just getting as a way of kind of distracting those faculty members to get them go do something to waste a bunch of their time, even though the administration had already determined they're gonna get rid of something, yeah. right? So in a context like that, when you're being told, well, the problem is that we don't have data to support that. And then you have faculty members that go and say, okay, we're, we'll get the data, we'll do the data, we'll do it ourselves. We're not gonna give you paid for this. We're just gonna go up, we're gonna do the research, we can get the data, we're gonna show you and all that. And you were told that that was the problem. They didn't have the data. So you bring them the data to show them. And it turns out that they didn't really care about the data at all. You go through that for <clears throat> a couple years, then five years, then 10 years. I'm going on my 20th year at Kutztown University. And you hit a certain point And you give up. You don't give up on the students. You don't give up on what you're doing in your class. You don't give up on your kind of like required job duties, but you start, I start saying, why the hell am I spending all this time thinking about innovative programs and new things to do when I'm just going to get burnt by it and I'm going to spend all this time and energy and it's going to be wasted. Maybe I should start putting this energy elsewhere. <coughs> so anyways, I've told versions of that story before, but this article comes out, um, like I said, by um, Kevin McClure and Elisa Hicklin-Fryer. 
called The Great Faculty Disengagement. And uh, there's like just parts in here that I just saw myself so much. And let me just read you these kind of quick sections of this. And it says, basically saying like, look, we have all heard about the great resignation, how people were kind of like quitting their jobs left and right, um, and very often to take other high paying jobs because, uh, you know, in, in the aftermath of COVID and all this other kind of stuff. And they called it the great resignation because you had numbers of people quitting were just huge, which is then now forced to some of the kind of lowest wage um, um, employers to actually have to lift up their wages. Right. But so they're looking at this and they're saying, well, look, faculty aren't exactly quitting their jobs. <clears throat> right. But doesn't mean that it's, there's not a similar dynamic. And it says, nevertheless, most faculty members aren't making big job moves for them. The great resignation looks different. We would describe it as disengagement. They are withdrawing from certain aspects of the job or, on a more emotional level, from the institution itself. Faculty members are not walking away in droves, but they are waving goodbye to the norms and systems that prevailed in the past. They are still teaching their courses, supporting students, and trying to keep up with the basic tasks, but connections to the institution have been frayed. The work is getting done, but there isn't much spark to it. In response to our Twitter thread, they put this out before, this is where the article came from, people said that they were doing what they must, but nothing extra. They said they used to be a rah-rah team player, but not anymore. They used to feel strong ties to their institution, but they have since felt so undervalued that they're cutting back. One response that typically stood out to us, quote, faculty might not be quitting, but they've left the building. Sometimes departure is a state of mind. It's important to note that disengagement doesn't suggest laziness or that faculty members are necessarily shirking their core responsibilities. We know on a deep personal level that many faculty members are working very hard. Doing the bare minimum in a global pandemic is sometimes a her 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 Herculean, I always can never get that word, Herculean effort. In some ways, disengaging is a perfectly rational response if your employer signals, th signals through their words and actions that your engagement isn't welcome. Many faculty members are being asked to do their jobs in a way that puts their safety at risk, and when they raise concerns, they are ignored and invalidated. It's hard to bounce back from that. As we think about the causes of disengagement, there's no denying that institutional management of the pandemic and poor communication are front and center. People responded to our thread with unmistakable fury and a palpable sense of betrayal over how decisions were made and how faculty and staff members have been treated as a result of those decisions. And we've been involved in enough university governance over the years to understand that there's always some slow simmering conflict between faculty and administration. It's inevitable and probably healthy in small doses, but the anger and subsequent turning away from institutions we've observed, this feels more like a rolling boil. And so those are the folks that I decided to invite, see if we can get them on the show. <clears throat> Um, there's another article that's kind of connected to that too as well that came out in November 2021 called Colleges Are Hirings, But, Pe but Do People Want to Work There? Um, also written by Kevin McClure um, <clears throat> that I'm really interested in uh, talking to them about. So we shall see. So I'm looking at stuff like this. Um, I know I had reached out to some folks um, that are working on environmental issues, um, working on climate issues in the state of Pennsylvania. Um we said we'd kind of get back in the new year, so we're hopefully going to have some folks coming up in the next few weeks um, on that, too, as well, um, looking at climate policy in Pennsylvania, um, because we're going to have to do something. It seems like um, everything is pointing in the direction of failure at the federal level. So um, <clears throat> there. Um, in other, I'm going to save this one for last. So in other news, I, I'm reading some cool stuff that I thought I'd share with everybody. If you're looking for things to throw on your reading list, um, there is this one here. 
Um, it's called um, The Apocalypse and the End of History, Modern Jihad and the Crisis of Liberalism by Suzanne Schneider. Um, she was interviewed on um, uh, the Majority Report not too long ago, and the interview just blew me away. Um, so here, here is this is from the Inside Jacket cover. So most commentators assume that modern jihad is antithetical to Western liberalism. Historian Suzanne Schneider argues the opposite. The behavior of jihadists has a, a lot in common with the political life in the United States and Europe. Examining the politics and ideology of the Islamic State, she discovers a microcosm of global political trends, one that can help us understand the slide towards authoritarianism and nihilistic violence apparent worldwide, from the spectacular violence of mass shootings to authoritarian populism and the rise of xenophobic nationalism. Um, she is, um, um, what is she? The deputy director and core faculty at the Brooklyn Institute of Social Research, uh, specializing in the history and politics of the modern Middle East. Um, is the interview with uh, um, on the majority report was absolutely fantastic. I'll try to remember to throw it in the show notes. Um, but so I just picked up this books. One of the books I ordered at the Dolestown Bookstore, and I picked that up today. Um, the second one is this amazing little book. This is called uh, On Compromise, Art, Politics, and the Fate of a American Ideal by Rachel Greenwald Smith. Um, I mentioned her on the show a couple of weeks back um, after, again, this is another Majority Report interview. Uh, Emma Viglin um, interviewed um, her, and it's absolutely fantastic. And it is right it's it's funny because it's dealing with questions of art and it comes at things from these uh, from a little bit different perspective than um, I think a lot of folks in the political world start thinking about, but it is at the core of some of the problems that we're facing right now in the current um, iterations of the Democratic Party um, and what we hear about compromise. So let me read you. Here's the on the back on the back cover for this is so in on compromise, Rachel Greenwald Smith argues against viewing compromise as an unalloyed good politically, ethically, and artistically. By way of such topics as the Riot Girl movement, the Iowa Writers' Workshop, and a COVID-19 pandemic, protests for racial, racial justice, and the resurgence of fascism, she raises, the danger, uh, she raises the dangers of thinking about compromise as an end rather than a means. Yet even as Smith explores the ways that late capitalism demands individual compromise, she holds out hope for the possibility of lasting change through collective action. Um, absolutely fantastic um, interview and I've started to read this book already and it's and it's great and it's right in this it reminds me of this other book um, that's related that I'm going to go back to and reread um, it's called Against Civility um, which is also looking at the ways that civility is deployed as a particularly against kind of people of color um, as a way to um, you know as as Martin Luther King famously put in uh, letters to Birmingham jail about the kind of um, the white liberal or the white moderate um, but how that civility is deployed in this way. What uh, Rachel Greenwald Smith discusses is that, you know, we've shifted, and you could see this in the rhetoric of Biden right now about how you're going to reach out to Republicans um, and have a compromise, and compromise is the, the mark of good legislation, right? That's the kind of the language that we hear in the mainstream media, where what she's arguing is like, no, 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 that is the, the exact opposite of the way that we need to be thinking about stuff, right? That is the language of late capitalism. That is not the language of um, good legislation or something that is measured for the, for the good of the people in a democracy. 
Right. So, you know, when Joe Manchin basically says he's not going to vote for anything unless there's Republicans on it, too, as well, that is the, the complete ass backwards way to thinking about it. It gets us a way of thinking about the impact of policy and has us pay attention solely to the form of democracy. Like, are there is it bipartisan as opposed to is it addressing a real need in the world and is it going to help out people? Right. And so this is where with the Democratic Party in particular, which is so focused on, on 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 bipartisanship and compromise, as opposed to having an affirmative agenda for things that are going to are going to do good for people. Right. So um, that's kind of at the, at the core of her book. So I'm going to be getting back to that, too, as well. So that's a great book. Again, it's called On Compromise, Art, Politics and the Fate of an American Ideal. Um, strongly recommended um, there, too, as well. So I got one more thing I'll kind of lay out for you before I call it a night, unless there's other things that are on people's mind. Um, my uh, my copy of Descent magazine uh, kind of arrived this week, and I was uh, kind of perusing through it. I just opened it yesterday, and um, I thought this was a an appropriate introduction that I thought I'd kind of close out a little bit with her tonight. And this is from um, uh, Timothy Shank, who is the co-editor of Descent. Um, his kind of editor's note at the beginning of the issue is called Born into the Dark. And um, it says, you know, what's, what's going to happen? Basically, we're looking at Republicans poised to take over Congress in the midterms. And it looks like it's going to be more and more difficult to get anything kind of meaningful passed. And so, you know, what happens to progressives who give up on progress? And so I'm just going to read this for you here. And this is from the inside jacket again. The problem isn't just about the frustrations of the last year. Yes, the headlines have turned to an eerie replay of the 1970s. Inflation, rising crime rates, Afghanistan as the new Vietnam. But the day-to-day setbacks are part of a distinctive set of concerns that have been gathering strength over the last decade. There's the dwindling faith that millennials and Zoomers will claw their way back to the economic security so many of their parents took for granted along with the fraying of meaning of the fraying of meaningful human relationships in the age of social media and maybe reoccurring lockdowns plus the constant ticking of a doomsday clock as the planet heats up little by little it adds up to the deepening conviction that progress itself is an illusion that history is always ready to undo any temporary advances over humanity's natural state where the strong do what they can and the weak do what they must In the face of all that, we have a caretaker presidency as a bridge to what exactly? For now, it seems like a Harris Buttigieg ticket or some other human counterpart to to an in this house we believe sign. No wonder progressives aren't exactly chipper these days, for which I suggest readers of dissent should be grateful. We're a tribe united by our recognition that pessimism of the intellect is the starting point for serious politics. Liberals have merely adopted the dark. But democratic socialism was born into it, born out of the realization that history wasn't going to deliver a ready-made working-class majority to our side, born out of the belief that collective action could nevertheless inch us toward a more just world. We know how it feels to lose faith in the inevitability of progress. But we also know you get something better in return, hope for real democracy. So I don't know about you, but that seems kind of like an appropriate way to close out <laughs> for the night. Um, <clears throat> kind of got a real mix of some kind of cool things going on. Some, uh, again, uptick of unionization efforts, 
um, looking at uh, um, attempts to bring in some kind of basic income experiments into Philadelphia. Um, and, you know, and the usual kind of dark cloud that I, I, I so often bring um, to these airways. <clears throat> so anyways, I uh, want to thank everybody for tuning in tonight. I appreciate the time. I appreciate you stopping by. And I appreciate you sharing out the information to your friends, uh, to your family members, your colleagues, um, letting them know about the show, getting them involved. Um, it's fantastic. Um, this Wednesday, we will not have a show uh, for this Wednesday, but next Wednesday, um, we'll, uh, Cyril Michaleko will be back um, for the Wednesday show. We're going to basically take a look. He's got a, got a couple great articles out. He's got a, he's got another gig um, that is going to be uh, bringing more of his voice to Bucks County, um, which I'm not sure if he's disclosed at all online yet, so I'll let him do that. Um, but we'll be talking about that next Wednesday too as well, um, talking about some of his latest um, columns and um, more about what's happening at Bucks County because it's uh, – I tell you, things keep on ramping up. There also seems to be some interesting cracks happening in the kind of Joan Cullen school board over here in Penridge that we might be able to talk about next week. On Friday, as I said, um, I'll let people know the details of how we're going to work that out, timing and all that other kind of stuff on Friday. Um, we're going to be trying some things a little bit differently on these um, next several weeks over Fridays um, in part because Sean's schedule, as I said – has uh, has changed and now he has a work conflict with our our normal recording time. So um, we shall see. But I can promise you one thing: uh, it's it's going to be cool, um, and I'm looking forward to it. I'm just hoping that uh, we're going to get more um, bring you know use this as an opportunity to bring in more voices to this podcast, uh, more folks doing great work, um, kind of around Bucks County and across the state, um, and uh, you know. Have some fun while we do that. All right. Hey, everybody. This is Kevin Mahoney, editor and founder of Raging Chicken. Um, uh, hey, Chris. What? Oh, okay. Okay, Chris, before I go then. So, um, yeah, um, I, I think you appreciate tonight's show, Chris. Um, I, uh, I, I, I mentioned this briefly. I was waiting to see if you jumped in. Um, I think we'll maybe have to talk a little bit more of this about uh, this maybe on Friday or something. But uh, I started watching Foundation, as you heard me talking about on the show last Friday. And uh, on in our Discord, Chris uh, Chris was the one basically who basically clued me into that the the show Foundation was based on Isaac Asimov's um, novel. I, I just I don't I have no idea why I didn't make the connection right when I first saw it. I was like, what an idiot. Um, but, you know, so he encouraged me. So, oh, yeah, definitely check it out. And so I did. I've been watching it. And I mentioned on the show last week that I've, I, I'm not sure where I'm coming down on the show yet. You know, um, not that I don't like it. Right. It's not it at all. But just trying to kind of think through like how I'm coming at it. And Chris was really um, it was great having a kind of little back and forth with Chris on Discord about um, what what that's about. Actually, I have it up here, and one of the things that uh, that he writes is that um, let's see. So, foundation. Uh, where is this one part that I wanted to read? And I think that this is dead on right uh, right here. So, Asimov wrote Foundation as a kind of take of the eternal reoccurrence and the rise and fall of empires, and fashioned it on, on Gibbon's history of the kind of rise and fall of the Roman Empire. I that's I think that's right on the money, right? Um, right on the money. And um, it's really good. And I have to say, and I wrote back to Chris, this past, the last episode I watched was kind of like a turning point for me a little bit um, in the series to kind of figure out what this kind of unsettled feeling I had um, was with the show. It wasn't, it wasn't really like good or bad. It was more like kind of like, 
more located at the affective level of what was happening in the show. I think that's really what it came down to. And this past week or this past episode that I watched really kind of turned some of that for me. So um, hopefully we'll be doing some more of that kind of stuff on the Discord too, looking at some of the kind of shows we're watching, um, kind of back and forth on that, what we're reading and so on. Um, I'd love to hear from you. Thank you, Chris, for that comment in Discord and uh, looking forward to hearing your comments um, about tonight's show, too, as well. Um, thanks, Emily. Thanks, Amy, too, as well, for chiming in tonight. Uh, great to hear from you all, too, as well. It's always a uh, great start to the week for me uh, when I get to spend it with some uh, pretty much awesome folks uh, as part of the Raging Chicken community. So um, thank you very much. So um, this is Kevin Mahoney, editor and founder of Raging Chicken. I don't know why that just happened. That wasn't supposed to happen. Where This is what was supposed to happen. <laughs> I want to thank you all for tuning in tonight. And uh, we will check you out. Um, we'll be here on Friday. Uh, look for us on our Discord or our social media to find more about Friday's show. Talk to you soon. See ya!